Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church, where we believe all people are icons of the invisible God, made in his image to reflect his glory and grace. For more information, go to iconchurch.org. We are continuing in our series in 1 Corinthians that we started in March, will end in August, and we've broken it up into a couple of little like sub-series, and so for the last week and the next three, we are going to be talking about the idea of our kind of gospel-formed freedom and gospel-formed rights. So we talked about this last week kind of as an introduction to the idea that we have been given freedom in Christ and, and rights kind of as uh, Christians. And yet the most common way that the Bible and specifically Paul in these three chapters of Romans, uh, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 uh, talks about them is almost always and universally in the context of laying them down, laying down those rights uh, for the sake of something else for the sake of other people, uh, for the sake of God, for the sake, we'll, we'll kind of see all the, all the different reasons. Um, but this, is the, this idea is so foundational that I want to just take a minute because uh, not only is it foundational to Paul's understanding of rights and freedom and all of these things, it, it's really the most kind of countercultural piece of all of this. That in America, we have a, a, an ongoing, and, and I would say right now, a very acute conversation about rights, human rights, uh, gay rights is, uh, we'll say a word about that in here just a moment, uh, abortion rights and all, all kinds of rights, civil rights and all of the things. And so much of that conversation is about the preservation of rights. Uh, it's about fighting for rights. It's about not giving up our rights, not letting other people take our rights. That's uh, the, the bulk of that conversation. And so it's striking to me that while the Bible affirms the presence and power of the rights and freedoms we have in Christ, the majority of the time Paul is talking about and Jesus is talking about the idea of willingly laying down those rights for the sake of some kind of greater ideal. So um, one way that we might think about it is that there, there is great power in the rights and freedom that God has given to us, and yet there is even greater power, more transformative power in a person's willingness and ability to lay those things down for the sake of someone else's flourishing. And in fact, uh, this is the foundation of the Christian faith. Right, like the entirety of the faith um, begins with God in heaven being worshipped uh, 24/7 by all of the angelic beings and by all of creation uh, itself, and and yet Jesus willingly laying aside those rights for the sake of other people, right? Willingly laying down his freedom, becoming a, a human being, and, and kind of being contained in a human body. And we read from Philippians. Uh, two last week where Paul makes that argument that we should have the same mind as Christ did, that he was willing to lay down everything for our sake and that that laying down is what had kind of transformative power. And so um, we, we kind of build on that foundation. And last week we talked about the idea of laying down our rights for the sake of a, a weaker brother or sister. That there are certain freedoms that as we grow in maturity that we kind of become more and more uh, able to enjoy the freedom we have in Christ. And yet some who uh, are newer in the faith or still wrestling with a particular sin uh, don't have that same freedom and that it is kind of... Um, uh, the responsibility of the strong uh, to care for the weak. And that's the responsibility that God has given to strong uh, in every sense to care for the weak in every sense. And that's God's kind of kingdom paradigm. And so this week, Paul is going to talk about the idea that Christians ought to lay down their rights and freedoms for the sake of those who are not Christian. As, a, as an intentional uh, means by which we would demonstrate the gospel to them. So um, my office is just uh, two blocks down this way. And so um, I uh, live just uh, 20 blocks, which sounds like a lot, but it's walkable, uh, down this way. And so this neighborhood is very much my life. 
And uh, today, in particular, spent a lot of time walking around the neighborhood and kind of taking in all the sights. And, and, uh, and there are sights uh, today, uh, especially, um, that are uh, striking. And, and I, you know, we came from San Francisco, planted a church in the middle of San Francisco. And, uh, and so there's very little about all of the, what's going on this weekend that's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that. Um, it, it, it's, it's somewhat become normalized uh, to me, which is kind of probably another conversation altogether. Um, but, but something struck me as I walked around today um, thinking about, and I do this every Sunday where I walk around the neighborhood thinking about uh, Sunday and thinking about my message and trying to think about how my message might be intelligible to the people in our neighborhood. And of course, today is uh, uniquely so. Um, not only because of pride and, and all that's going on there, but because this message is so specific, uh, so specific about how Christians ought to lay down their rights and freedoms for the sake of non-Christians. And, and so as I'm walking around and, and seeing all the things, um, uh, one, one thing in particular stuck out to me that I hope uh, will be a uh, kind of an orienting theme, an orienting idea for us here at ICON. And here's what I thought. I thought, you know what, tonight in, in this church, there will be a group of image bearers of Christ in deep need of the gospel who have come together uh, to, to kind of reach out for that need, reach out for the grace that they need uh, in hopes that, in, in, in faith that God has met them in their need and, and has redeemed and reconciled. And, and we kind of, as a community, walk forward uh, together in that grace. And the, the only difference between what's happening in here and what's happening out there, because as I was walking around, I realized that out there, I, I saw a bunch of image bearers of God in deep need of grace. Just the same way that in here, there's a bunch of image bearers of God in deep need of grace. And, and, and perhaps the only difference between us in here and them out there is that we have come to a place by God's grace that we have recognized our deep need and reached out for help. Like that, that's, that is the only thing that separates the, the, the us and the them. That, that gets broken down at the cross, that gets broken down in Christ, that all of the us's and all of the them's gets broken down. The only difference is that we in here, and I, I don't make assumptions about all of you in here even, but that we who are in Christ are image bearers of God in deep need of grace who have just simply reached out to the only one who died on our behalf so that we might have the grace we know we need. And that they, as we walk around uh, after church is over and perhaps you go and enjoy the uh, restaurants and all the things going on here, that, but that we would have the perspective that um, they out there are two image bearers of God, deeply loved by God, in, in, containing all the dignity and value that an image bearer has in deep need of grace, just the same way I am in deep need of grace, in need of reconciliation, just the same way I am in deep need of reconciliation. And the only difference is that by God's grace, he has opened my eyes to see my complete inadequacy and the inadequacy of the, all of the promises of the world to satisfy that deep longing in my heart that he was made for. That's it. That's the difference. The difference is that God's opened my eyes to my dependence, to my neediness, and to my complete inadequacy and inability. And so we pray as a church, and this is why we call ourselves icon. We, we, we say this all the time, but we call ourselves icon because image bearer of God is the truest thing about us. That it is our, our kind of hope in discipleship that not only would we know that, but that we would embrace it and grow in our, uh, uh, grow in our ability to reflect that image bearingness in us. That we would, that the means to accomplish that is the true image bearer of God, according to Colossians 1, the image of the invisible God, Christ himself. And fourth, last, that that would be our, uh, our, our perspective on and our posture towards our city, that it's also the truest thing about them. And so I, I hope, and, and I, there's a, a lot of ways we can think about what's happening out there and what's happening in here, but I, I would encourage us, and I, I think it's Paul's desire for us that we would see that the only difference is that by God's grace, our eyes have been opened to our great need and his great provision. And that's it. And that's that puts us in this uh, humble posture 
that I hope would allow us to hear Paul's words uh, in 1 Corinthians 9. So let's read uh, that together. Starting in verse 1, Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, um, pause there. Don't read any further because right up until that point is like every pastor's favorite passage right? Because it, it, Paul is making an argument here that those who work as ministers of the gospel should get paid by the churches that they serve. And I, I would say, amen, please, right? Like for my children, right? There's so many of them. And uh, there's something kind of interesting happening here um, that is a common theme that we've seen throughout 1 Corinthians, and that is um, that there are two factions in this church in Corinth, and we've seen them uh, at a, a couple of different levels. We saw them uh, several weeks back um, on the issue of sexuality, that there was a faction that was approving of the man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law, and then there was another faction that said men and women should never have sex. And Paul enters into that going, nah, to both, uh, saying neither of those are what the gospel would have us do. And then we talked about when it came to eating food sacrificed to idols just last week, that there was some who said, hey, this is no big deal. We understand that this is, uh, that there's no such thing as idols. They're not real gods. They're just fake. And then there was another crew saying, nope, we should never eat food sacrificed to idols. And Paul came in and gave a, a kind of a gospel formed response. Now, what's probably happening here in this passage, though, uh, you know, I, I honestly could only pick it up because of some of the historical commentators that uh, describe what's happening here is we talked in the early weeks about this system of patronage that happened in 1 Corinthians or in, in Corinth during this time, where there was kind of famous speakers and preachers and pastors who would, uh, would kind of on the dime of wealthy parishioners travel around and be kind of known names, not so different from the idea of um, kind of artistic patrons, right? So uh, artists are generally super poor, and so wealthy people would kind of pay for their lifestyle and in return get some kind of social position because they were attached to this artist. Well, the same thing was happening uh, with pastors and, and speakers and, and kind of itinerant preachers. And so what's happening in this passage kind of culturally is there was probably a group of people who wanted to be the patron for Paul and essentially take him under their patronage and pay for him and pay for his lifestyle. And there was another group who said, no, pastors shouldn't get paid at all and they should only do this kind of as a service unto the Lord. And Paul enters in saying, basically, he makes a five-point argument for why pastors should get paid, why there's every reason why that is a legitimate thing to do, and yet says, I won't do it. 
Because one of the things that was involved in this kind of system of patronage was that the wealthy people who, uh, who, who were the ones paying the money also kind of felt a sense of ownership over that person. And so there was kind of baked into the culture of this thing like, hey, I will pay for your lifestyle as long as you don't say anything I don't like, right? And so in the midst of that, I think the, and, and we, we've kind of drawn some of these lines down uh, and, and maybe in some senses an unfair way because it doesn't reflect our current way we use these words, but there were certainly like conservative streams and more liberal streams in this church. And certainly I think along the lines of don't ever have sex and have sex with your mother-in-law, I, I think that's fair to say conservative and liberal. Um, but uh, along uh, on this line, what was probably happening is some of the more conservative people were seeing the way patronage was sullying the message of the gospel because kind of, like I said, baked into the culture was this idea of like, hey, you're my communicator, therefore you need to take some of those hard edges off anything you say about rich people. And oftentimes those who were more conservative were probably on the poorer end. We've seen some of those parallels so far in 1 Corinthians. Um, and they were probably less educated. And so they were swinging the pendulum saying, no, we had to do away with this whole system of patronage. Therefore, pastors shouldn't get paid at all. Paul comes in and goes, no, you're both wrong, as usual. Uh, the gospel confronts both, uh, both kind of uh, uh, compromised liberalism and anything that smells like sin is bad conservatism. And says, no, there is absolutely an argument that pastors should get paid by their congregations, by the people that they serve. But... I won't take a dime from you because I know what you think that means. And he says at the beginning of verse uh, 15, I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel." So Paul grounds this whole argument by saying, listen, I am not going to leverage the fullness of my rights. The rights that I just made an argument are totally legit. Jesus said so, the Old Testament said so, logic says so, culture says so, religious practice says, says so. All of it says it's cool and I'm not going to do it because I know what you mean by it. I know what you think you will get from me and I want to be able to stand up with, with full clear conscience and say I preach the gospel as it is and nobody can accuse me of, uh, of kind of watering down or easing it or tailoring it to certain audiences and not others. And this is kind of his foundation for what he's going to say in the rest of this passage which applies a little bit more clearly to us. Um, the kind of so what on that first section I will say is uh, keep paying me, please. All right. That was a joke, y'all, but not a joke also. But kind of a joke. All right. Paul says in verse 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Um, 
for those of you who are uh, new to church, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, this is a very familiar passage to many Christians. This is uh, a passage used by pastors all the time uh, to talk about how Christians ought to do evangelism. Uh, if we were going to talk about how, how to be missional or incarnational in our approach to evangelism, we would go to a passage like this. One of the dangers with familiar passages is that they can easily become kind of a, kind of a trope, kind of a thing we just go, yeah, yeah, uh, become all things to all people, and it, it, it kind of ceases to become meaningful. And I am someone who grew up in the church. I have heard this idea and this passage over and over and over and over and over. So for me, the challenge this week was I tried to kind of take a step backwards from it and go, okay, what, what do we... What are ways in which um, Christians get this wrong? Or what are ways in which we have kind of taken this for granted, it's kind of become a thing that's so baked into the language of churchiness that we've missed Paul's argument and why it would have been fairly offensive or at least challenging to most of the people that he's writing to. And so I, I have three observations on this passage uh, that I think, I think for me were, were challenging, and, and I hope so for you. Number one, this call is primarily, it is first and foremost, a call to servanthood. In verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I may win more of them. And this word servant is the word Paul uses all the time. Sometimes we, we translate it as slave, sometimes servant, sometimes bond servant. It's the same idea that Paul is saying, though I don't owe you anything, though I am free from all of you in Christ, I willingly make myself a slave to you. I serve you in order that you might understand the gospel. And he says, so that I may win more people. I would take that posture of a servant. Now, there's a, a couple of things baked into this idea of servanthood that I think are important. One, um, Paul is going to go on, as we read, and say, you know, to those under the law, I become as one under the law. To those outside the law, I become as one outside the law. To the weak, I become weak, and on and on and on. Well, one of the ways in which God calls us to serve those around us who are Christians and non-Christians, but because this is the context, those who are not Christians, is to be able to identify, um, okay, who is this person, right? Like Paul has an awareness of the people that he is sharing the gospel to. Some of them are under the law, some of them are not, some of them are weak, some of them are not, some of them are outside the law, whatever the case may be. But all of that presupposes one thing. He knows them, right? Like Paul knows these people. And so one of the ways in which I, I think this is a challenge to us, to some of us as Christians, and um, I, I might say even I'll be culturally relevant here in Seattle and say those of us who live in Seattle and are not, let's say, predisposed to talking to other humans, when we don't have to. Um, something called the Seattle freeze, which like right at this moment, I'd take some because it's hot. Uh, but the idea here in Seattle that we are not particularly friendly people, I've heard, I've not experienced that, you're warm and wonderful. Uh, but some people have said uh, that that's kind of a thing here in Seattle. And so for those of you who would identify with that and maybe, maybe couldn't name significant relationships that you have with people who are not Christians so that like the rest of Paul's argument here is, is kind of difficult to do because how would you know how to be weak to the weak or uh, strong to the strong or you know under the law to those under the law if you don't know the people around you? Right, so the first way in which we might serve the people around us is to know the people around us. And for some of us, that is challenge enough. Second, 
Because this argument is for servanthood, um, it does take on a, a particular posture that we have to have. One of the ways that I have experienced this passage used is often as an excuse, and this may seem like a, a, a kind of oddly specific example, but I've, I've often heard this passage used as an excuse basically to go to the bar with your coworkers. And it's like, oh, well, I'm just, I'm being all things to all people. And, you know, I'm just being with the people and they're going to the bar for happy hour. So I'm just, you know, all things to all people. So I have to go with them. And that's fine in as far as it goes. But I'm not sure that this should be a proof text for bar hopping. Um, this is far more a call for us to serve those around us. So one of the things that um, I learned from a, a pastor friend of mine, uh, Jeff Vanderstelt, who I used to work for at DOXA, and many of you know, um, I, I observed in him in, in, a, in my first six months or so working with him, his kind of incredible ability to connect with people and have people walk away um, from a, a, a difficult encounter. In fact, in the first six months I worked there, I watched him have to let somebody go to fire them. And they walked away tearfully thanking him. And I went, you know, that's never happened to me. Um, I've had people walk away tearfully, but not thanking me in the process exactly. And, uh, and, and so uh, after that moment, uh, the person uh, left the meeting and, and we were kind of like, okay, wow, that went remarkably well. Well, how did that happen? She thanked you. That's literally never happened to me. Uh, I said, well, how do you do that, man? Like, that's magic. How, how do you do that? And, and he said this, he said, uh, one of the things I do in, as often as I can, and, and he, it seemed like, uh, did it pretty intentionally, and it had become a pattern for him, so he then didn't have to do it intentionally, was that he asked himself, what does this person need from me? What do they need from me in this moment? See, I think one of the mistakes we can make with a passage like this is that we can kind of zoom it out and think, okay, I got to be all things to all people at all times, which is literally impossible first, but it leads us to take a passage like this and make it largely theoretical and, and not actually practical or actionable. And so if we can actually zoom it back down to a moment and say, what does this person need from me in this moment? that that's actually a, a, an idea or a question that we can answer and that we could, we, could, we could act on and actually serve that person that way by asking ourselves the question, what does this person need from me right now? And all of the things that we do in, in these kinds of uh, situations, and I'll say especially evangelistic, evangelistic situations, are in some sense a reflection of uh, kind of an answer to a question. And I would say for me, and, and, and I'll admit this as, as a fault and a sin, often I am asking the question, um, what, do, what does this person need to see in me or hear from me so that they'll think I'm normal or they'll think I'm great? They'll think I'm attractive, not in a physical sense, that ship has sailed, but in like a general sense, right? So this, uh, this uh, office, I work at a co-working space, and it's wonderful, and I love it, and I meet all kinds of non-Christians all the time, and the first thing they ask me is, what do you do? And I go, oh, that's a bummer. And then I say, I'm a pastor. And then I quickly try to follow up with something witty or smart or uh, winsome or intelligent or something so that I go, I'm a pastor, but I'm okay, it's okay, it's okay. Because essentially what I'm saying is I'm not one of the weird ones, I promise. Get to know me before you realize I am one of the weird ones. But so instead of asking the question, what does this person need from me so that they think I'm great or that they think I'm normal or so that I might be attractive to them, you know, for Jesus, that we would ask ourselves, what does this person need from me? And need is the key word here. Because the question we're not asking is, what do they want from me? That's a, whole different, that's a whole different path. But what do they actually need from me? Which leads to my second observation. The power is in the gospel. In verse 12, notice that uh, Paul said, uh, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. 
And then down in verse 20, he says, to the Jews that became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law became as one under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law became as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. To the weak it became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. The gospel and the gospel alone has the power to save. It's the gospel and the gospel alone that has the power to transform, the power to satisfy, the power to meet the needs, the real needs of all of the people. It's the gospel that is the answer to what all of us in here and all of them out there seek each and every day of our lives, that we seek in our work, in our relationships, in our identity, in our practices, in all of our things, the gospel is the answer. The gospel is the power. The gospel is what people need to be one to, and we'll talk about that language in a moment, but the gospel is the only thing that has the power to save. So Paul says, I will do anything so as to not put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Now hear what he's not saying. Paul is not saying, I will remove all of the obstacles of the gospel so that I might win people to this. The gospel is itself an obstacle, and it's obstacle enough. He has already, in 1 Corinthians, called it foolishness and called it a stumbling block. That is, for most of them out there, and if we're honest, most of us in here, the truth about the gospel, that it is obstacle enough. And so Paul says simply, I will not add anything to it. It's hard enough for people to lay down their lives, lay down their preferences, put their hope and their future in the hands of an unseen God. That's hard enough. I'm not going to add to it behavioral expectations. I'm not going to add to it cultural identities. I'm not going to add to it all of the baggage of Christendom or Christianity to what is already difficult enough in the gospel. And, and so this is hard and needs a lot of unpacking and needs a lot of nuance to it. But as I walk the streets today, I think about what have these people rejected? Is it the gospel? Is it actually the gospel that most of the people in our city have rejected? Or is it something that we put in front of the gospel that never allowed them to actually hear the gospel? And what am I doing? What am I projecting? What am I saying? What am I doing? How am I, how am I putting up obstacles to the gospel so that they can't actually even see and hear and understand it, which is the only thing that has the power to save? The behavior that we want people to have, often we get cart before horse and say, we, you got you to get this stuff straight before you can come to Jesus, and that is just fundamentally backwards. But see, we do something extra with that, even, that there are some things that we expect people to get straightened out before they come to the gospel, and there are other things that we seem more open to them figuring out along the way. And it feels like it's often the, the kinds of sins we can relate to the kinds of sins we understand, the kinds of struggles and temptations that make sense to us that we go, yeah, that's a tough one. We'll take care of that as we go. And that there are others that we go, mm, let's get that one figured out before you come in. Which is that idea is itself a fundamental rejection of the truth of the gospel. That we would say, you've got to get this figured out before you get the gospel implies that it's not the gospel that changes the thing. And so Paul goes, I, I will go to any lengths to remove obstacles to you just understanding the grace of God for you. The love of God poured out on the cross for you. So the power the power to save, the power to transform, the power to heal, the power to make whole again is in the gospel and only the gospel. Not in our practices, not in our culture, not in, our, not, not in any of it. None of the things have the power. Only the gospel has the power. 
And so Paul says, there was, there's literally nothing I will let get in the way of it. But the other side of that coin, observation number three, we have to go, and you just go with me on this, but we have to go all the way in so that they can come all the way out. Verse 23, Paul says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, there is, uh, on the one hand, a predisposition in some of us um, to say, hey, let's get some things figured out and then kind of come on in. And there is a tendency in others of us to say, hey, I'm going to go all the way in with you. I'm going to be where you are. I'm going to get into your life. I'm going to get into the mess. I'm going to enter in. I'm going to be there with you wherever you are. I'm in to the depths of your life. But then what we do with the gospel is we fundamentally change it in a different way where we take it all the way in and go, hey, actually the difference between you and me is very little. And the step of faith is very small. And, and most, the absolute most of what you are doing is absolutely fantastic. What if, but if, what if we just like, what if we just sprinkled a little Jesus on it? And so we make the ask of the gospel very small. We live our lives on the kind of on the edges of morality. And I will argue that that doesn't actually help anyone. Trying to convince them that the step of faith of small is small isn't helpful and it isn't true. And it's an exchange that some people make in order to get a to get a commitment. It's an exchange that some people make in order to be kind of thought well of. It's part of that, I want you to think I'm great, I want you to think I'm normal thing, that I'm gonna enter all the way in and then just let's, let's take just a little baby step together and then and that's it, and, that's, and we're good there. Um, this week, uh, I was reading about uh, the 9-11 first responders, and um, there's, they've been kind of working with Congress to get funding for so, so many of them who uh, got sick or lost their lives as a result of them being first responders. And um, I was thinking about this passage and all this, and I ruin everything by making a sermon illustration, but um, I thought about this. Like, the difference... What makes a hero in these moments, and I, and, I, and I saw this speech by John Stewart, the comedian guy, which was so compelling, and, and it just occurred to me, what makes these guys heroes and these women heroes who were the first responders for 9-11 is they went all the way in, all the way into the depths of the building, to the worst parts of what had happened that day. And what made them heroes is that those, they grabbed people and they pulled them all the way out. That there is a temptation in us, some of us, to kind of from the outside of the fire, shout in and say, come out. Seems terrible in there. Like it's, you're burning. Like come this way, there's less, less of the fire. Like come over here. And there's others of us who are willing to go all the way into the midst of the fire and then convince ourselves and the victim that all they need to do is take one step and that's it. And that, that's all there is. And the difference between you and, and all that you need is just this little, just sprinkle a little Jesus on it and just let's kind of, let's distill, ease the gospel down to this small thing. And you've actually just left someone in the fire. Paul says here, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul wants to share with those non-Christians the blessing of the gospel because gospel life is the flourishing life. So Paul goes, listen, there's literally nothing I want to put in front of the gospel. This, the purest form of the gospel is the most powerful form of the gospel. And so it can be made known to everyone that there's no kind of cultural things that we're going to put on top of it. So you don't have to be X, Y, and Z before you can get the gospel. The gospel is literally for every person in its purest sense. And yet it asks everything of you. 
So it literally has to go all the way into the depths. We cannot share the gospel from the sidelines and from the edges and just kind of tell people they're on fire and wish that they will come out. That we have to get into their lives to be able to know who they are, to be able to ask what they need, that we know that what they need is just the gospel in some unique form for them. And then we have to make them, help them understand and help them see what we have seen by God's grace, that the only hope is to come back all the way out of the fire and that to live at the fringes of the fire is simply to burn and that that is no life to live that the flourishing life that we were made for the healing the wholeness all the stuff we long for and seek for all of the days of our life are found in so far as we press deeper and deeper into the truth of the gospel which then draws us out of the fire For those of you who are here and you're not Christian or you maybe you are a Christian but you're sensitive to these things, I, there's, a, there's language in this that I, that I could understand confusion or even offense that there's this idea of winning and saving and all of that. And, and in our minds, like if, if we're winning you, that means you're losing to us. And as a very competitive person, I'm drawn to that if I'm honest. But, uh, but that's, that I, I, want you to hear, I want you to hear Paul's desire I want you to hear God's love for you. I want you to hear the gospel that we believe as Christians, that we are made in the image of God just like you, that we are in deep need of reconciliation to God and deep need of the grace of God because of the brokenness and rebellion in us and that the difference, again, is simply that God, by his grace, has opened our eyes to our need and shown us his provision and we have allowed God to save us. We've reveled in God's saving work for us. And that all of Paul's energy and and what might feel like strategy and all of this is just born out of a heart of Paul saying, I once was lost and now I'm found and I just want you to experience the same thing. Paul finishes with a challenge to Christians. It says, do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. We discipline ourselves for a lot of things. All of us do to one degree or another. We say no to sweets. We say no to sleep. We say no to family. We say no to work. We say no to our health. We say no to money. We say no to all kinds of different things. We discipline ourselves for health and we discipline ourselves for success and we discipline ourselves for all kinds of things. And Paul says, um, ultimately, What are you disciplining yourself for? What is the end of all this activity? And have you ever thought, really seriously, the way you have thought about your health, have you thought that strategically or that intentionally about how you might share the love of God, the gospel itself, with those non-Christians around you? Paul goes, I I don't discipline myself for no reason. I don't beat the air like I'm boxing nobody. I, I have a purpose. I have a reason. I suffer and I sacrifice and I hone and I I am intentional about all of the things in my life so that I can share the gospel without reservation and that I can do so without being disqualified so that they might not hear something I say and then see something in my life and see a disconnect from that. He says, I work towards that end. This is a challenge for us as Christians because we discipline ourselves for a lot of things and my guess is, and I would be the first to admit this, is I, I don't spend as much time thinking strategically about how I am disciplining my life for the sake of the non-Christians in my life as I do disciplining my life for the sake of my own health or my own career or my own whatever. I don't. And, and the fruit of it, the fruit of it is that we don't see as many people come to faith. 
I mean, I'm not going to make anybody raise their hands, but that would be a challenging discussion to say, when was the last time you saw someone in your life come to faith as a result of your intentional work in their lives? Now, it's not all up to us. Like, we understand the Holy Spirit does these things, but the Holy Spirit has chosen to work through us. This is why Paul tells us to do these things. We have a lot of success in our careers. We have a lot of education. We have a lot of health. But I wonder how many of us apply that same discipline to our pursuit of those around us who we believe are in the fire and in deep need of the love of God. The truth is we won't do this until we recognize the degree to which Christ did this for us. That there was a plan from before time that God had this all in mind from before the foundations of the earth. Talk about like some, some good like Stephen Covey planning kind of stuff. Like from before the foundations of the earth, God had a plan for this. Save you. Save me. We are the fruit of that plan and the means by which it would continue to bear fruit. And so when we, when we consider that, when we dwell upon the work of Christ on our behalf, that should move us, compel us to walk in his example for the sake of those around us. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We are, uh, we are yours because you have made us yours. We are entirely the fruit of your work on our behalf. And God, we are so deeply thankful that you have not left us in our sin, but pursued us at great cost to yourself. And that you have asked those who have seen your face, who have known your grace, to pass along what we have seen. That there is hope, that there is a future, there's a plan, that we might live that out for the sake of those around us. Lord, deepen in our hearts our awareness of your love for us so that it might flow out of us to love for those around us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, uh, let's do uh, some Q&A. Just a couple of questions here this evening. Um, first question is, what are some practical first steps to uh, being all things with coworkers? Um, uh, so I'm gonna repeat myself a little bit here, but I think uh, these are some helpful first steps. First, um, get to know them. Uh, you, you, you can't even know what they need until you know who they are, right? And um, my, uh, my challenge for you in that is um, to uh, do whatever it takes in your own mind so that uh, that approach to that person is done uh, as uh, one image bearer of God seeking to have the kind of community with another image bearer of God that we were all made for. Not, okay, my goal is to win them, right? My goal is to defeat them, or my goal is to, right? Like, uh, they ought not be the end game of your strategy, uh, but all of our desires to uh, care for people and connect with people, and we, we talk about this all the time in, in the kind of large gospel story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. In God's creation, we were made for perfect relationship with God and perfect relationship with the rest of God's creation. And so as we pursue these relationships, we are, in a sense, simply pursuing God's creational intent for us. God made us to have those kinds of intimate relationships with the people around us. And so when we pursue them, we're just pursuing that. We're pursuing God's vision for humanity. And I think if we can kind of keep that idea in mind, it might keep us from uh, targeting people rather than just engaging uh, another human being. So first, get to know, another, uh, get to know some other humans uh, and, and, and just ask some good questions. Who are you? Where'd you come from? What do you like? What do you, what do you hate? What do you, you know, as time goes on, ask them real good questions like, what are you scared of? What do you want in life? What do you care about, right? People love 
talking about themselves. And so if you just ask good questions, I tell this to young guys who are dating all the time, just ask questions and let them talk. This is how you win people, right? Uh, and it's for women and men. But we just, we like to tell other people about ourselves. Now, this isn't always true. Some people don't and some people have a hard time. All, I get all that. But ask good questions as if you actually wanted to know them. And, and kind of reflecting uh, theologically the fact that like who they are out here is always a reflection of who they are in here. And so the sooner that we can get underneath and get to know kind of what actually drives them, um, it'll start to make sense of some of what's going on out here and, and some of the behavior uh, that you see. So seek, you know, get to know them, ask good questions, and then again, the whole time, just think to yourself, what do they need? What do they need from me? And the answer in the big sense is the capital N need is the gospel. And so the implication is then, in what way can I demonstrate or, or proclaim and explain the gospel for these people? And that's going to look like different things. So hopefully those are some help, helpful uh, first steps. Uh, second question. Uh, in my sin, God loved me just as I was and saved me to a life in Christ. Absolutely. Absolutely. How can I communicate that message of grace to those who marched in Pride Week? Will I appear to be condoning an alternate lifestyle? Um, it's a good question. And um, I think the answer is, uh, is, is, is difficult in some sense and really simple in others. What you said at the very beginning is absolutely true. God loved you, loves you exactly how he made you, exactly in your rebellion, all of that. And yet he died so that you could be different, right? Like if, if, the, if the movement of God was simply to say, I love you no matter what and just keep doing it, then the cross is foolishness and, and a massive overreaction. The cross of Christ is redemptive. The cross of Christ is reconciliating, right? The cross of Christ is transformative and sanctifying. Uh, that Jesus looked down on us and said, I love them so much, and yet they are so broken and, and so much rebellion. I will die and, and pour out my grace upon them so that they can be what I made them to be, so that they can kind of be returned to my intention in their creation. So um, the gospel is true, that God loves them exactly where they are, and Christ died for them to reconcile them back to himself. That's absolutely true. And I wouldn't put any obstacle in the way of that, trusting the Holy Spirit to do the Holy Spirit's uh, reconciling and redemptive and transformative and sanctifying work, and that our attraction to the gospel will attract us and others to God. And as we move towards God, God works in us to be able to change us and make us into who he made us to be and what the kind of grand end of, of the cross was. So I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about what you think somebody, what someone else thinks you might be condoning or not. Uh, I, I wouldn't worry about that. I that is well worth the risk of explaining to someone the truth of the gospel without conditions, without exceptions, without hemming and hawing or well, but this. If someone is willing to hear the truth of the gospel, deliver it to them in its purest form, knowing that that draws people to God, and then the Spirit does that work, and the community does its work, and sanctification and discipleship does its work over time. That would be my answer to that question.